Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? On this episode, I read pages 11 to 16, where Henry David Thoreau talks about the basic necessities of life, heat and food, uh, especially being in New England. Um, What is it like for the people who live here in the cold? And he mentions Darwin and Liebig. Tune in, listen, find out. We might try our lives by a thousand simple tests. As, for instance, that the same sun which ripens my beans illumines at once a system of earths like ours. If I had remembered this, it would have prevented some mistakes. This was not the light in which I hoed them. The stars are the apexes of what wonderful triangles. What distant and different beings in the various mansions of the universe are contemplating the same one at the same moment? Nature and human life are as various as our several constitutions. Who's Who shall say what prospect life offers to another? Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? We should live in all ages of the world in an hour. I, in all the worlds of the ages. History, poetry, mythology. I know of no reading of another's experience so startling and informing as this would be. The greater part of what my neighbors call good, I believe in my soul to be bad. And if I repent of anything, it is very likely to be my good behavior. What demon possessed me that I behaved so well? You may say the wisest thing you can, old man. You who've lived 70 years, not without honor of a kind. I hear an irresistible voice which invites me away from all that. One generation abandons the enterprise of another like stranded vessels. I think that we may safely trust a good deal more than we do. We may waive just so much care of ourselves as we honestly bestow elsewhere. Nature is as well adapted to our weaknesses as our strength. The incessant anxiety and strain of some is a well-nigh incurable form of disease. We are made to exaggerate the importance of what work we do, and yet, How much is not done by us? Or, what if we had been taken sick? How vigilant we are. Determined not to live by faith if we can avoid it. All the day long on the alert. At night we unwillingly say our prayers and commit ourselves to uncertainties. So thoroughly and sincerely are we compelled to live, reverencing our life and denying the possibility of change. This is the only way we say. But there are many ways as there can be drawn radii from one center. All change is a miracle to contemplate. But it is a miracle which is taking place every instant. Confucius said, To know that we know what we know, and that we do not know what we do not know. That is true knowledge. When one man has reduced a fact of the imagination to be a fact to his understanding— I foresee that all men will at length establish their lives on that basis. Let us consider for a moment what most of the trouble and anxiety which I have referred to is about and how much it is necessary that we be troubled or at least careful. 
It would be some advantage to live a primitive and frontier life, though in the midst of an outward civilization, if only to learn what are the gross necessaries of life and what methods have been taken to obtain them, or even to look over the old day books of the merchants to see what was that men most commonly bought at the stores, what they stored, that is, what are the grossest groceries. For the improvements of ages have had but little influence on the essential laws of man's existence, as our skeletons, probably, are not to be distinguished from those of our ancestors. By the words necessary of life, I mean whatever, of all that man obtains by his own exertions has been from the first, or from long use has become so important to human life that few, if any, whether from savageness or poverty or philosophy, ever attempt to do without it. To many creatures, there is in the sense but one necessary of life, food. To the bison of the prairie, it is a few inches of palatable grass with water to drink, unless he seeks the shelter of the forest or the mountain's shadow. None of the brute creation requires more than food and shelter. The necessaries of life for man in this climate may, accurately enough, be distributed under the several heads of food, shelter, clothing, and fuel, for not till we have secured these are we prepared to entertain the true problems of life with freedom and prospect of success. Man has invented not only houses, but clothes and cooked food, and possibly from the accidental discovery of the warmth of fire and the consequent use of it, at first a luxury arose the present necessity to sit by it. We observe cats and dogs acquiring the same second nature. By proper shelter and clothing, we legitimately retain our own internal heat, but with an excess of these, or of fuel, that is, with an external heat greater than our own internal, may not cookery properly be said to begin. Darwin, the naturalist, says of the inhabitants of Tierra del Fuego, that while his own party, who were well-clothed and sitting close to the fire, were far from too warm, these naked savages, who were further off, were observed, to his great surprise, to be streaming with perspiration at undergoing such a roasting. So, we are told, the new Hollander goes naked with impunity, while the European shivers in his clothes." Is it impossible to combine the hardiness of these savages with the intellectualness of the civilized man? According to Liebig, man's body is a stove, and food the fuel which keeps up the internal combustion in the lungs. In cold weather, we eat more, in warm, less. The animal heat is the result of a slow combustion, and disease and death take place when this is too rapid or for want of fuel, or from some defect in the drought, the fire goes out. Of course, the vital heat is not to be confounded with fire, but so much for analogy. It appears, therefore, from the above list, that the expression animal life is clearly synonymous with the expression animal heat, for while food may be regarded as the fuel which keeps up the fire within us, and fuel serves only to prepare that food or to increase the warmth of our bodies by addition from without, shelter and clothing also serve only to retain the heat thus generated and absorbed. The grand necessity then for our bodies is to keep warm, to keep the vital heat in us. What pains we accordingly take 
not only with our food and clothing and shelter, but with our beds, which are our night clothes, robbing the nests and breasts of birds to prepare the shelter within a shelter, as the mole has its bed of grass and leaves at the end of a burrow. The poor man is wont to complain that this is a cold world, and to cold no less physical than social. We refer directly a great part of our ales. The summer, in some climates, makes possible to man a sort of Elysian life. Fuel, except to cook his food, is then unnecessary. The sun is his fire, and many of the fruits are sufficiently cooked by its rays. While food is generally more various and more easily obtained, and clothing and shelter are wholly, or half, unnecessary. At the present day, and in this country, as I find my own experience, a few implements, a knife, an axe, a spade, a wheelbarrow, etc., and for the studious, lamplight, stationery, and access to a few books, rank ne next to necessaries, and can all be obtained at a trifling cost. Yet some, not wise, go to the other side of the globe, to barbarous and unhealthy regions, and devote themselves to trade for ten or twenty years in order that they may live, that is, to keep comfortably warm and die in New England at last. The luxuriously rich are not simply kept comfortably warm, but unnaturally hot. As I implied before, they are cooked, of course, a la mode. Okay, so I just read uh, five pages um, from Walden. Uh, for those of you following along, um, in my, at least in my copy, it's pages 11 to 16. I have a really lovely... Um, version of the book that was published in 1911, uh, illustrated by Clifton Johnson. Um, it's green, but it has lovely gold, uh, gold leaf on the front. Um, it is a very special edition, and I'm hoping that my reading of it will um, be honoring the, the book and the existence of at least this edition and this physical object um, in the way that it should be honored. So, um, he, Thoreau was talking about, um, so this is a, a typical example of Thoreau going from like the super big picture to, um, down to like a few specific details. And he's sort of making this really interesting argument about like what is necessary in life, um, and how we sort of use each other to sort of determine what we think is necessary and to sort of show off for each other, um, you know, versus what the animals do. And they, you know, they, the bison just, you know, he just needs food and that's it. Um, and we, we steal the, uh, from the breasts of birds. I love that phrase, um, to make our own, uh, little nest when we're, um, making blankets for our bed. Um, uh, so let me go through it. Um, he, he starts this section, um, and I've, I'm dividing these sections. It, it's not really him. Um, I try to, um, I'm trying to, to do this just in five page sections and he didn't really divide it up. So, um, I'm, I, but I think that, that at least today it sort of fit into a funny, um, a good, funny continuation, um, and cohesive argument. Um, cause he starts, um, you know, so like, how do we figure out our lives? We might try our lives by a thousand simple tests 
as, for instance, that the same sun which ripens my beans illumines at once a system of earths like ours. So, you know, if you are eating and, and like beans are actually like a funny um, metaphor that he returns to again and again. Um, and I th- and it's it's kind of a general play on the whole idea that you know things aren't worth a hill of beans because um, if you're if you're eating beans right just imagine like a tiny little bean on the plate in front of you um, and the thing that made that grow is the sun and meanwhile the sun is you know ruler of universes and and um, you know. It illumines a system of earths, earths like ours, plural earths. Um, and then he's like, if I had remembered this, it would have prevented some mistakes. I think that that's him trying to be funny. He's like, he's like, if I had thought about the big picture, I wouldn't have been like so idiotic. Because uh, it certainly wasn't the light in which I hoed them. Uh, the stars are the apexes of what wonderful triangles. I think he's he's also reaching for a metaphor there. Um, like in the, the triangle being like the star in the sky, um, you on earth and whatever object you're looking in front of, um, even if it's like a metaphor, um, you know, or literally a bean, um, you know, so he's, so, and then he, and then later on in that same paragraph, he, he gets into, um, like the whole notion of empathy, um, who shall say what prospect life offers to another? Um, could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? Um, so he gets into like, you know, and history, poetry, poetry mythology. Um, I know of no reading of another's experience, meaning like reading somebody else's biography, so startling and informing as this would be. You know, like, yeah, isn't, isn't the idea of idealized empathy so amazing um and you know that's that's what he's i think striving for in this book but i think also just the the notion that i think a lot of writers have of like yes what would it be like to actually experience the world through another's eyes and in this section he sort of he brings in um um different peoples native peoples that um, are not really, you know, the, the townspeople of Concord don't really think about every day. He's thinking of the, the you know, the idea that, fr- frankly, we're all human. Um, he talks about Darwin and um, what, the, what Darwin had observed, how, you know, there are Native peoples that he's watching, and while Darwin and his group are huddling in, uh, in uh, Tierra del Fuego, huddling around the fire, and Tierra del Fuego is the southernmost point of um, South America. And that's completely, you know, completely foreign to the idea of Concord and, you know, whatever that, you know, the, the, the mid, you know, 1800s of America is, you know, that's about as foreign as you can really get. And, and he's saying, isn't it, he's like, maybe the Europeans are the ones that are strange. Because, you know, Darwin's huddling by the fire, trying to get warm, but, you know, the natives of the land are, you know, f- much further off and they're perspiring. Um, so I feel like he brings in a lot of these, like, subversive thoughts every once in a while um, without really, 
um, I think without really like stating it directly, but I think the very fact that he's bringing it up um, is very unusual for his time. Um, and so wait, to get back to the section I was working on, uh, the greater part of what my neighbors call good, I believe in my soul to be bad. And if I repent of anything, it is very likely to be my good behavior. Uh, that's something that I definitely want on, um, a bumper sticker or something that I see every day. Um, what demon possessed me that I behaved so well? Uh, so again, he's sort of like, really the, the, the elders in his town are, you know, he's, he thinks they're not really giving him good advice. He doesn't really believe them. Um, because generally the advice that he's getting, especially around that, this time is like, you should just like shut up and get a real job. Um, he had tried to be a teacher. Um, he actually got fired because he wouldn't hit the children. Um, this is like a, this is a documented event that happened. He was teaching, um, kids in the center of Concord, uh, at the Masonic hall. And, uh, you know, he, uh, the, the intendant superintendent came in and, uh, was like, Hey, how come you're not hitting the kids? And Henry's like, I, cause I don't want to. And, uh, he's like, well, that's the requirement of the job. And, uh, uh, so anyway, so, so Henry, Henry wasn't good at a, jo a job like that. Um, after Walden was printed, he helped his family out and actually did, like his whole life, his, his family had a, a, a modest pencil factory. So, um, you know, in addition to the, the writing stuff, he was actually trying to help out in the pencil factory and he made some trips to get money. Um, and do some deals for the, for the factory. It wasn't like a factory factory. It was like a, a house with like machines inside. So, um, I'm, I think factory is a, a grand word there. Um, but anyway, so he had, he had helped his family out doing that. And then in his later years, he was also a surveyor, which actually suited his personality perfectly. Um, but here, like he's sort of arguing against the whole idea that, um, you know, his elders are giving him advice. And again, like the line, one generation abandons the enterprises of another, like stranded vessels, uh, like rats leaving a sinking ship. <laughs> like the kids of one generation are going to do exactly the opposite of whatever uh, the elders tell me to do. Uh, so yeah, so he's, he's like, he's like, again, trying to like, think of why. So and really like, what are jobs for? What are careers for? What are you, what are you doing with your life? Why are you, um, struggling? And, you know, there are, and again, like he has a line, there's many ways as there can be drawn radii from one center. Um, so he's bringing in geometry. Um, he's, he's a well-rounded guy. Like he had gone to Harvard, um, which I, I think is another reason that a lot of the people in the town were like, Hey, you should get a real job. Cause you're one of the people who actually has a college education, so you shouldn't be wasting it by just hanging around in nature, writing stuff down. Um, and and so he brings in geometry. He brings in Confucius. Um, Harvard was really big on ancient Greek and um, Latin, but and I I think that there were some professors there that had um, a larger view of world world literature. Um, but Henry's, you know, he, he brings in a lot of references to, um, Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought, um, and Confucius to know that we know what we know, um, and that we do not know what we do not know. That's true knowledge. So figure out what you actually know 
and figure out what you don't know. Um, because, you know, in, in heaven knows, in today's day and age, um, a lot of it is people thinking that they know things um, and sort of living with things as a kind of certainty and never really questioning anything and just sort of operating on the idea that, well, you know, the sky is blue and and I need to go to work every day and I need to work an 80-hour week because that's what my family does or that's what I need to do because I want like a new car or whatever um, without really questioning like, yeah, wh- what kind of new car do you want or like what do you want the car for? Um, are you impressing people or do you really like... Anyway, whatever. I don't want to get off on, on that kind of a tangent. Um, so let us consider for a moment what most of the trouble and anxiety which I had referred to is about and how much it's necessary that we be troubled or at least careful. Um, and I apologize if I've pronounced necessary, necessary. <laughs> I think it comes up a bunch of times. And as a reader, I apologize if I'm not... Uh, pronouncing everything overly uh, carefully. Uh, when he mentions, uh, uh, I had said Tierra del Fuego, when he actually had written it as Terra del Fuego, which is uh, an old-fashioned um, version of, you know, the land of fires. And uh, Magellan had had named it that. He's a Portuguese explorer. And he had named it that because he saw lots of fires on the land, thinking that he was actually about to be attacked. So that's that's where that name came from. Um, so again, he gets to, Henry gets to uh, the necessary of life. Um, and, you know, this is why you would go to a cabin in the middle of the forest um, and, you know, to really figure out what is the, what is the basic thing that I need. Um, and one of the one of the other quotes it's not in this section um i came to the woods because i wanted to live deliberately um you know and consciously and sort of like that's the that i think is the core of the myth around what henry was doing that he not only wanted to think about what was the most necessary thing but that he was sort of pledging himself to live in this very um, clean aesthetic, you know, or to, um, to eliminate all of the other things in life. And frankly, he's, you know, he's a writer, he wants to find out what it is, but he's not, um, like, forsaking technology and society and um, the, you know, the town completely, because uh, he only did it for two years. So he's not... Um, a lot of people think he's a hypocrite because he came into town and whatever. Um, but here he's just sort of like, you should question everything, including especially and especially yourself. Um, and throughout, he's also wanting you to question what he's doing as well. Because he's like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm asking myself. Um, and again, like he had mentioned a few pages before, like if the if the coat fits you, great. If not, then, you know, you should um, not assume that I'm forcing you to wear like a straight jacket or the coat that I'm offering. Uh, you need to question stuff for yourself. Um, so again, the bison the, for the prairie, like all he really needs is food. Um, a lot of other animals need shelter too. Um, when he talks about the New Englanders, he's also talking about... So I'm... 
I, th- I actually resonate with what's happening right now because we just had a snowstorm. Um, I'm, you know, 20 minutes away from Concord. We just had like 16 inches of snow. Um, and you, you know, you, you curl yourself up in, in your, your bed, um, huddling for warmth and you hope that you have enough food. And, uh, you know, we've added electricity as one of the necessities of life. Um, but he, um, you know, he's, he's sort of, he's sort of questioning what, what people and also like even cats and dogs, uh, cause, cause having a fire to, uh, and, and cooked food, you know, man has invented not only houses, but clothes and cooked food and possibly from the accidental discovery of the warmth of fire and the consequent use of it. At first, a luxury arose the present necessity to sit by it. You know, at first it was a luxury, but now we just think of it as something that we have to sit next to, um, which is how I think we sort of treat electricity right now. Um, it's not actually required for us to live, but if we don't have it, we feel, we generally feel sad. Um, and, and he gets to Darwin and Terra del Fuego. Um, and, oh, and then he also mentions New Holland. Uh, so we're told the New Hollander goes naked with impunity while the European shivers in his clothes. Is it impossible to combine the hardiness of these savages with the intellectualness of the civilized man? Um, and then he, uh, so, uh, New Holland, by the way, is the old name for Australia. Um, and he uses the word savages, but I think that's, um, it's the language of his time. I apologize for that. Um, sorry. I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, but I think he's also he's also trying to make a joke here. Is it impossible to combine the hardiness of these savages with the intellectualness of the civilized man? Um, there's a, there's a, a, a stream of thought sort of running through Walden and the rest of his writings where he wants to be as hardy as the native American, um, people that he, like, he doesn't really know a lot of them. He meets a few of them throughout his life, but sort of the legend of what native Americans are, um, and that's kind of like this, this, um, how can I put it? It's like a white power thing as well, because like a lot of white people really admire the idea of the noble savage, but you know, they don't really do anything to actually help them out as people. Um, so, you know, that's a, it's a little bit of a blindness where like, yes, this is a really great thing, but, um, you know, am I going to use any of the power that I have to help you as a people? Um, sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. So anyway, moving on, uh, according to Liebig, a man's body is a stove. Uh, apparently he was like the, the first guy to really talk about fertilizer. Um, and then he also, like a lot of his theories were about nutrients. Um, he was born in 1803. So he was, you know, he was probably about the age of Emerson, um, but in his time, he was known for um, offering advice to farmers and and also coming up with the formula that um, that created things like the beef bullion, you know, where you literally can just throw it into a pan of water and you can create stock. Um, so the idea of whittling down things down to their bare necessity. Um, so I don't know if that's if that's chemistry, if that's husbandry, if that's just a um, it's it's sort of interesting to know that Henry was up on the latest um, science because Darwin was actually just um, published 
um, you know, a year, a few years before Walden came out. So, so Henry's up on the latest science and it's interesting to, to try to think that he's combining all of these theories um, and he's sort of coming up with um, these theories of his own, you know, he's, he's combining the theories of science um, and then also the theories of philosophy. All right, the grand necessity then for our bodies is to keep warm, to keep the vital heat in us. And uh, beware, that's going to be a, an ongoing metaphor as well. What pains we accordingly take, not only with our food and clothing and shelter, but with our beds, which are our night clothes, which I just think is a great line. Um, and the poor man is wont to complain that this is a cold world and to cold, no less physical than social. We refer directly a great part of our ales. Um, New England can get cold. So he's, you know, he's not, he's not wrong about that. Um, the summer in some climates makes possible a man, a sort of a lesion life where you can literally just live off of, um, fruits and vegetables and you don't actually have to have cooked food. So that's another thing that you can kind of eliminate, um, in, uh, in Walden, like they're like the, the Walden, the pond, like he, you can collect berries, you can gather nuts and you can live kind of a vegetarian life. Um, but I think I think at one point he actually um, hunts down a groundhog, but that's kind of more out of like revenge. Um, that's another story. Anyway, uh, food generally is more various and more easily obtained, and clothing and shelter are wholly or half unnecessary. He's like saying, "Well, it's easier to live if you're not living in New England." Um, and he uh, he really like this. This guy is really a Spartan. Um, I find my own experience a few implements, a knife, an axe, a spade, a wheelbarrow, um, for the studious lamplight stationery and access to a few books, um, rank next to, um, necessaries and can all be obtained at a trifling cost. See, so like if, if the basics of what you need for your life are really just a few things, then, you know, don't stress. Um, and but he, and then he talks about, again, like a lot of his neighbors, um, some not wise go to the other side of the globe um, to barbarous and unhealthy regions and devote themselves to trade for 10 or 20 years in order that they may live, that is, keep comfortably warm and die in New England at last. Um, here I'm thinking of, uh, and I think he's thinking of, not necessarily like... Um, the slave traders, um, cause that was, that was actually barred, um, at some point. Um, but he's thinking of, you know, just people who are, you know, conducting business and literally they go, uh, you know, across the world to find some, you know, they, they, they trade in fur, they trade in whatever. Um, not because, not because they're adventurous, not because they just want to travel, not because there's anything intellectual about it. Um, but because it's going to provide them a really nice retirement when they finally come back to New England to die. Um, and he, he, or at least I ended the section with um, one of the jokes that he had. Um, the luxuriously rich are not simply kept comfortably warm, but unnaturally hot. So again, like if he, if these traders were born in other parts of the world, they, they wouldn't be so, um, dare I say it, weak. You know, they wouldn't be suffering from cold. 
Um, as I implied before, they are cooked, um, of course, a la mode, which means the style of the day. So he's saying that the style of the day is to, uh, to work too hard, to, uh, to, you know, run yourself into the ground, running all over the globe. Um, and I personally know of lots of people who, who do kind of the same thing, you know, where they travel all the time, um, cause they're saving up for a rainy day or, uh, they're just doing it because once you get a certain amount of money, you know, you just have the sense that you, you know, now that you're in a, yeah, you're in a career and, you know, even though you have enough money to live, you still need to be pushing forward and you still need to, um, you know, become a manager and then work your way up the, the ladder of corporate success. And again, capitalism, um, what's the point of that? You know, is it, you know, cause once you, and at least studies have shown now that, you know, you're happy when you have a certain amount of money. And then when you get more of it, it doesn't necessarily make you happier. Um, it just, it's literally just numbers in your bank account. Um, so he's again, setting up the whole idea of just, um, it's not such a ridiculous idea to go off and, uh, build yourself a hut on the edge of a pond. All right. That's it for today. Take care.